Blessed are the judgmental, or is it blessed are the merciful? In this conclusion of our study of the book of Jonah, Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, wrestles with the question, Is it right for God to forgive the wicked when they repent and turn away from their sin? Beth had a real godliness in her life, and she had a real tenderness towards the Lord. Beth also went away to school and, and uh, began what happened in a freshman year, began to make those choices that you need to make about the first month or so, you know, deciding to get in the church family and deciding that you're going to keep up your quiet time and deciding that it's not just going to be your mom and dad's faith, but it's going to be your faith. And Beth made all the right choices. Nikki made all the wrong choices. In fact, around Thanksgiving, she came back home from the Christian college and at the end of the Thanksgiving break in the evening, she had to take her dad aside and she had to tell her dad those words that dads just cringe to hear. Dad, I really think I'm pregnant. By the time Christmas holidays came and Nikki came back, she left her Christian school because she definitely was pregnant. What do you do? Here was a kid that was raised in a really strong Bible church and really committed you know, to the Lord, and yet she's blown it and she's gotten pregnant. What do you do? Well, Nikki and her dad got down on their knees together and they just asked the Lord. Nikki just poured out her heart to the Lord and told her Savior that she was so sorry for what she'd done. They came and talked to their pastor and Nikki and her dad shared that they were so sorry for what had happened and they'd asked the Lord Jesus to forgive them and they wanted to ask their brothers and sisters in Christ to forgive them. And so the church family took Nikki in. She didn't go back to school, but they took her in and they nurtured her. And they began to take care of her. They began to create an environment that would be well for this new mother to be. About maybe four months after this news broke, and in just in any church family, the news just spread like wildfire. So just about everybody found out. You know, obviously you can't hide a pregnancy and when someone gives birth to a child. And it's not a private thing. It's a very public thing. And about maybe, you know, four months into that, the pastor got a note, got a letter, really, an extended letter from Beth. This straight shooter. Now, Beth had made all the right choices. She'd made all the right decisions. She had kept herself pure, and she had remained true to the Lord. And she wrote this letter, and she, she basically said to her pastor, she said, I just can't believe that you would just let this go. I can't believe, you know, if Nikki wasn't just so cute, and if she just wasn't so bubbly... If she would have been an ugly duckling, I'm sure that the whole church family wouldn't react like that. And you wouldn't just bring her in. And I want you to know that I think it set up a whole issue where the whole church family is going to respond to this. And it's going to cause young women to want to fall as well. What was happening in that story? Beth is a straight shooter that is expressing what's deep inside all of the hearts of you that are straight religionists. You see, when we're straight religious, we have the idea that if we're forgiving and we're gracious, that somehow that condones sin. That somehow it will cause sin to spread. So the way we're going to attack sin is we're going to come down really hard on those who sin. And we're going to make sure that we make them an example of what happens to somebody that blows it. Two attitudes. One, Nikki, that's repentant and open to the forgiveness that Christ wants to bring. And Beth, a straight shooter that in a lot of ways feels that she hasn't made a mistake in her life. 
And yet she has a very strong, stringent standard towards the way that Nikki should be treated. What do you think? Right now in this room, I have those that are open to forgiveness. The truth of the matter is that when it really hits home, and it has to do with our kids, and we're trying to create safe environments for our kids, there's some of us that can have the same reaction that Beth had. And if you understand how Beth feels and the anger she feels because of what Nikki has done, as you open your Bible today to Jonah chapter 4, you'll understand how Jonah felt. The thing I love about the book of Jonah is that it tells the truth. The greatest desires that I have is that I want our Sunday morning times to be times of truth. I don't want them to be times where we make believe. I don't want them to be times when we pretend. I want our relationship with Jesus to be totally built on authenticity and truth. The truth of the matter is that, that we can play a good public game and we can put on airs and we can pretend that we don't have certain attitudes, but Sunday morning needs to be a time where we let this book open up the pages and really tell us the way things are. The book of Jonah is really a very troubling book because it's the only prophet, Jonah is the only prophet that in the canonical scripture never gets his life straightened out. In fact, Jonah, only in chapter 2, when he goes and proclaims to the, the city of Nineveh and God works in his heart and he cries out, and then as he's obedient in chapter 3, that's the only good thing that Jonah does. And as we left Jonah the last time, there was this tremendous revival in the city of Nineveh. Thousands of people anointed themselves and put ash on their head and fell down on the, on the ground and did what some Semites do when they're really upset. And they poured out their heart to Yahweh, the great creator God, and begged for God to forgive them. Now, I would expect Jonah to return to Midlothian Bible Church just on cloud nine, really excited. But he isn't. He's really angry. He's really upset. And let's find out why in chapter 4. The last time we were together, we looked at the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And let's review that so we can get back in the flow of the story. But Jonah was greatly angry, greatly despised. He was hot, to put it mildly. He was really upset. He was steaming, is the idea of the Hebrew. The Hebrews like to picture anger. When somebody gets really angry, their face flushes, they get red. Like my vein in my neck, when I get really angry, comes out. Some of you might have that too. And what it's saying here is that that's the way Jonah was responding. He's really angry. And he prays to the Lord. He talked to the Lord about his anger. He says, Oh Lord, is this not why I said when I was still at home? And basically he says, Lord, wasn't this the reality when I was still on my ground? Back in Israel, back home. That is why I was so quick to flee from my ground to Tarshish. I wanted to get as far away from obedience to your command as I could get. Remember, Tarshish is way over in Spain. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Jonah knew the heart of God, but he rejected it. Jonah knew that God was a gracious God, that he forgives those who sin against him. That Jesus, his son, was going to come many years after Jonah. And when Peter asked him, well, how many times should I forgive somebody? Like if they sin against me six times in a day and they keep coming back to me and ask me to forgive them. And then when they come to the seventh time, I can go, no, I'm not going to forgive you this time. Now I'm going to make you pay. 
And the blessed Savior said, no. It's got to be 70 times 7, Peter. In other words, if you're counting, you're not forgiven. Way back here in the Old Testament, the prophet Jonah knew that the heart of God was gracious like that. Aren't you thankful for that today? I am so thankful that the almighty king of the universe, the almighty Lord of the universe, is gracious like that. Look what else Jonah knew about him. He knew he was compassionate. Remember I talked to you about the womb-like love that a mother has for her child. God has that kind of love for us. Jonah also knew that God was slow to anger. That reverses the way we are. We are quick to anger, quick to speak, slow to listen. God is quick to listen, quick to our prayers, quick to let us pour out our hearts to him. God takes a really long time to get angry. Aren't you glad? God takes a really long time to get angry. That's what this chapter is about. God had every right to really be angry with the Ninevites. They were the biker gang of the Old Testament. They were the ruthless tyrants. They were the the Islamic bloc of the modern world, you might say, that so many people have so much hatred toward. Some of you might really identify. You can really understand how Jonah felt. Because the Ninevites had done to his people what bin Laden did to our people in New York. And that's why Jonah hated them so badly. And that's why he didn't want to go to the city. God's slowness of anger shouldn't cause us to take his righteousness and his justice for granted. Because 150 years after Jonah preached, the city of Nineveh did fall. God destroyed the city. And when they turned away from him, and when their hearts didn't remain true to him, as future generations came and they were unrighteous, God's slowness of anger finally exploded and the Assyrians disappeared from the ancient world. The city of Nineveh, their big capital city, was destroyed. So don't ever forget that we're dealing with a real God. He's gracious, he's compassionate, but don't take for granted his slowness to anger. Don't let it be a conduit to your sin that causes you to excuse your sin. But Jonah knew God was very slow to anger, and then he also knew one last thing, that God was abounding in loyal love. Jonah knew that God would relent of the anger and of the judgment that he wanted to bring upon this great city. And so Jonah prays in verse 3, Now, O Lord, I want you to take away my life, for it is better for me that I die than I live. I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. What are you angry about? Is there something that you're angry about? Even as we deal with the problem of the terrorists, It's very important to take the anger, and there's a righteous, holy anger that every one of us as Americans should feel. But it's very important for you to take that anger and turn it over to God. And let God use the government that he's ordained, according to Romans 13. Let him use the soldiers. And you as an individual, it's very important for you to let that anger go. Because if not, you're going to get caught in the same hatred, the same violence that produced the Bin Laden. Because that's the way anger works. You see, when you get angry, when you get upset and you tank it, then you become guilty of the very thing that you're angry against. It just always works that way. And Jonah is giving us a classic case of a person that's consumed with hatred towards other people and filled with anger. It might be in your marriage. In your marriage, you've started on your marriage and your wife, when you first were married, was doing really good things for you and she met your needs and you loved her. 
But as your relationship started to develop, little things began to creep in. Little things began to creep in, and you started to allow anger to eat away at that relationship. And you haven't brought your anger to the Lord. You've tanked it. Just begins to eat out the inside of your life. You find out that you're not only angry with your wife, but you're angry with your kids. You're angry with your employees, your people working with you. You're angry with your church. You become a settled, acidic, negative person. Everything is wrong. If that goes far enough, and you tank it long enough, then you'll also have thoughts of suicide. Just take my life. Because that's the way anger works. You see, when you feel like, well, this world isn't the way it ought to be. This world is a disaster. This world is terrible. This world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And therefore, I might as well end it all because life isn't worth living. Those kind of thoughts flow from anger. And they're very powerful thoughts. In my own ministry, I've seen people actually take their life destroy their life and plunge their family into horrible, horrible agony and grief because of those kind of attitudes, those kinds of spirits. I might as well take my life because life is so messed up. God just is messing everything up and nothing's just and nothing's right. Nothing's the way it ought to be. That's what anger gives you that kind of mentality. Now, I want you to see how the Lord enters into dialogue with Jonah. And this is the dialogue the Lord wants to take in with you. I would expect the guy of the universe just to zap Jonah with lightning, and that's the end of it. Man, he's the great almighty king. This is a real God. This is the God that's right here in this room today. This is the God that will speak quietly in your heart. And my longing for every one of you as you deal with with this incredibly subtle, deceptive, very powerful force of anger and hostility in your life, I pray that you'll let God really talk to you. Just like he talked to Jonah. God says to Jonah, have you the right to be angry? The Hebrew text literally has, Jonah, is it really good for you? Is this really a good thing? And and it could imply, do you have a right to be angry? That's part of the fact that it's not good for him. But it also has to do do with the idea, is this really going to bring what the Hebrews call tov, which is the word for good, but it's not just like having, you know, flipping good feelings. It's like saying, is this going to make you really be okay deep inside your life? Is this really good for you? Is it good for for your relationship with your people? Is it good for what your ministry is going to be? The Lord asked Jonah a very penetrating question. I want to ask you that question today. I think God is asking that question. Is your anger really good? See, anger becomes just a way of life. It becomes the way you live. It just colors everything. And I want you to ask a really honest question. Is my anger really good for me? Does it really produce well-being in my life? Now, you've all heard that psychologists and and medical doctors tell us about what anger does to us. Anger will shorten your life. It builds up stress in your life. When you just stay cynical and negative... It opens you to heart problems. It opens you to blood pressure problems, which opens up the door to stroke. It opens you up to a multitude of... I mean, any medical doctor could tell you that someone that stays in a perpetual state of hostility towards others and anger towards others, it's not good for them. It's not going to produce well-being in their life. It's not going to be good. So the obvious answer to that question is, no, it isn't good for you. And I want you to see that God comes to you like that and he says, hey, your anger isn't good for you. 
It's going to destroy your life. It's not only going to destroy everybody around you. It's not, it's not only going to destroy your family. It's not only going to destroy your kids. It's not only going to destroy your relationship with your mom and dad. It's not only going to destroy your relationship with everyone that you're working with that comes in contact with you. It's ultimately going to destroy you. It's self-destructive. It's not good for you. And I think everyone would say, yes, God, I think you're right. I say that. But you know what? I find that when I get angry that I can know that this isn't good for me, but I hang on to it. How about you? I hang on to it. I allow it to go on. And anger is a very subtle, mysterious force. It comes upon you, and I've seen it in the last few years, I've seen it like rip church staffs apart with a relationship with their elders. I'm dealing with situations now with young pastors where the pastor got angry with the church leadership. Over little things. Maybe they blew like a raise that he, that he really needed, but he didn't get. And, and so he tried to bring it up so that they got started getting angry about that. And rather than being able to get down their knees together and asking the God of grace, the God of mercy, to help them work through this difficult time, these relationships have gotten so explosive that the pastor had to leave the ministry. And the anger was never resolved. The relationships were never reconciled. It's kind of like Paul and Barnabas. They just had to choose to divide. The incredible power of anger. I've told you many, many times, and I want to tell you again. In your marriages, watch out for anger. In all the years of counseling marriages, you say, Dave, what do you think is the biggest attack against marriage today? And it is anger. You get angry with the person you're living with. And rather than having a compassionate heart, we're able to say, Honey, will you forgive me? I did something, and that was from the pit of hell. I said these words to you. They weren't words of blessing. They were words of destruction. Moms and dads, do you understand how your anger when you're talking to your kids? Are the words that you say to your kids words of blessing? Or are they words of cursing? Every one of you is sitting, listening to the teaching of the word because you believe in the power of the word. You believe that words can powerfully encourage you. You believe that words can powerfully convict you. You believe that words can really nurture you. All of us need to ask ourselves, what am I doing as a parent with my kids with my words? And if those words are hostile, if those words are cursing, if those words are rejecting, then what it means is that there's anger in our heart. Because that's where that comes from. That's what I do. When I cut someone down, when I nail them, when I really get on their case, the reason I do that is because I'm angry. I'm upset. You're messing up my plans. You're messing up what I want to accomplish. You're blocking me from our goal. You see, Jonah wanted the Ninevites destroyed, and the gut of the universe blocked his goal and said, no, I'm not going to destroy the city. And Jonah got furious. Because that's what he wanted. You say, Dave, how do you know he wanted the city destroyed? Look what he does. After God says, Joan, is your anger really good for you? Is your anger really good for your family? Is it really good for your people? Is it really good for your ministry? What does Jonah do? The story you would expect, Jonah would get down on his knees and like somebody saying, oh no, I'm, forgive me for my anger, God, and I'm, I've got such a terrible heart and I want you to forgive me, pour your love inside of me. You know, that's the way most evangelical films would end right here. A quick fix. But that's not the way Jonah ends. Jonah has a direct interview with God. And look at how he responds in the next verse. It says that Jonah went out. 
he sat down at a place east of the city. So he went out of Nineveh. He got east of the city so he can look back to the west toward Jerusalem and he can look at the city of Nineveh. Then he made himself a booth, just like the festival of booth. He made himself a little hut, like I used to make when I was a kid in the Adirondacks. We used to put poles up and latch them together with a rawhide, and then we'd cut some branches out, and we'd put some branches on top of that to shade ourselves from the sun. That's what Jonah's doing. He, he makes his temporary little shelter. After he does this, he sits down in the shade, and he waits to see what happened to the city. You tell me, what do you think Jonah was waiting for? Yeah, he's waiting for the city. He was waiting for the show. He was waiting for God of heaven to send lightning bolts, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like he's waiting to see Sodom and Gomorrah take two. And we're just going to wipe out the city. And Jonah's sitting there. Boy, any moment it's going to happen. But he knows deep in his heart what he just had the interview about God about. So here he's waiting out there in the Middle East. And, you know, it begins to get hot. And look what happens. It says, then the Lord God provided a vine. He made this castor bean plant, probably. He made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort, to ease his pain. By the way, that idea of discomfort is the word that's used all the way through this book. Nineveh is a great city, but they're doing a lot of things that are wicked, that cause pain. Same word that's used in chapter 1. Here in chapter 4, it said that the Lord God caused this castor bean to grow up so that it would ease Jonah's discomfort. It would ease his pain. You see, one of the things in the universe that we have to decide is, like, do we really believe that God's heart is good? That God wants to really relieve us of pain? That the ultimate king of kings, the Lord of lords, is ultimately going to come through for us and we're going to have shelter. We're going to have freedom from pain. We're going to have freedom from things that harm us. And what God is doing, he makes his castor bean grow up, and it grows up in a, in a miraculous way. It just grows up overnight, and it brings shade to Jonah. When I'm running outside when it's hot, and after you get into maybe the three and a half miles, when the sun goes behind a cloud, in the summertime, when it's really hot, when you're running, especially near the end, when the sun is shaded from you, it's like you have relief, and you feel, man, this is great. Now I can run farther. You have freedom from pain. That's what this castor bean plan is doing for Jonah. Then the Lord graciously provides this, but, but at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm. So God not only provided the castor bean plant, but the creator also made this little insect, the cutworm that we're so familiar with here in Texas. And it chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun came up, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die. And he said again to the Lord, it would be better for me to die than to live. Now, what in the world is going on in this story? You see, God is a very powerful teacher. He doesn't just teach you on Sunday morning with the lecture method. God teaches you in real life. And what God is giving to Jonah is this incredible object lesson. Jonah is sitting there underneath his shelter. And God graciously calls it a castor bean plant. Grow up. You know, you're going to have times in your life where you're sitting in the shade and the castor bean is over your head and you're having the cool breezes. It's like sitting on the beach in, in, in Hawaii and life is good and life is marvelous. You have your iced tea and it's filled with ice cubes and life is really good. 
But then suddenly little worms are going to rise up and they cut the castor bean down and suddenly your life is thrown into tremendous crisis. And you start to feel pain. And that's what Jonah is experiencing because the Lord wants to teach Jonah. The Lord wants to teach Jonah that he's the king, that he's the Lord, that he gives castor bean plants, but he can also take them away just like that. You see, Jonah's angry because deep in Jonah's heart, he really believes that if he were God, he would do a better job. Every one of us in this room that's angry, deep in our soul, The root of our anger is we believe that if we were in control, if we were God, then things wouldn't be so messed up. We could make things right. And what God is trying to teach Jonah is that the way that the real God of the universe ordains life to be right now is sometimes he makes a castor bean plant that gives you a time of shade, a time of refreshment. But he also sometimes sends worms. And the castor bean plant is destroyed. And sometimes the east wind blows into your life. And sometimes it's an incredibly strong east wind. And it just begins to suck the life out of you. And again, this time, Jonah even physically, not just emotionally, but this time even physically, Jonah feels like, I've had it. I should just die. Life is too bad. The east wind is destroying me. I'm parched. And this is the end. Brothers and sisters, every one of you are going to have those moments of comfort, those moments of tranquility, and I'm going to have them, but we're also going to have times where the east wind is blowing incredibly strong. And the decisions that you make about God when the east wind is blowing is really, really important. This is the story of Job. Job experienced powerful east winds. And it had nothing to do with his own personal life. It wasn't like Jonah. You know, God wasn't trying to teach Job about his anger. Job was really a good guy. There was a higher conflict that was going on between Satan, the adversary of God, and God himself. And and God allowed east winds to blow incredibly powerfully. And, And Job's children were taken away, and his wealth was taken away, and his health was taken away. And the big challenge here, was would Job curse God and say, God, I think you're a terrible God. And God, I will not submit to you anymore. I don't want to have a relationship with you because I think you're a demon. I think you're Satan. And I'm going to reject you. Or would Job be able to say, God, it's really a tough time. And I have no idea why I'm going through the tough times right now. But I accept them. And I trust you. You see, brothers and sisters, the bottom line... It's easy to trust the Lord when God is doing what you want him to do. Have you ever noticed that? You see, when you pray to the Lord and the Lord comes through and he answers your prayer, and like if you're trying to get money for college and you ask the Lord, dear Lord, give me the money for college, and it arrives in your mailbox the next day in a little envelope, and you have money for college, oh, praise the Lord. We trust you. We're excited about you. We depend upon you. It's easy to trust the Lord when things are going good. And a lot of your relationships with God and my relationship with God is, God, I like having you in my life because I can get you to do the things that I want to happen. But that's not the God of the universe. God won't do that with you. Eventually, God will begin to say no. 
Because I need to shape your life, he'll say. I need to carve away. I need to discipline you. I need to strengthen you. I've got much bigger plans than you'd ever imagine. In fact, my plans even involve eternity. And I have things that I'm getting you ready for in this life right now that you're never going to understand in this life. And the big issue of your life will be, will I trust you, God? And Jonah wouldn't. Jonah would not trust the Lord. He wouldn't open himself up to the grace of God. Instead, he allowed himself to plunge into even worse depression. He allowed himself to even be more negative. And once again, he's just crying out, God, I want to die. Now, how does God respond to Jonah? We close the book, the Lord's final response to Jonah. But the Lord said in verse 10, You have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it, you didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. God's using an incredibly powerful object lesson. People that are angry will care about things and have compassion about animals and have compassion about plants. I've worked with some angry people that are pouring acid all over their kids, but they treat their poodle like a king or like a queen. They have great compassion towards an ignorant animal. No compassion towards their fellow human beings. It's one of the weird things that begin to happen. Or they, they, they take care of beautiful orchids and they grow incredibly beautiful plants and they tend those orchids. But man, they won't give their own son that's in high school five minutes. They give the orchids, you know, hours and hours and hours. That's what anger begins to do. It screws up your priorities. It makes you really care about plants. But you don't care about people. And that's what God wants Jonah to see. He says, Jonah, you're really brokenhearted because this gourd plant died and a worm ate it. And you're weeping and wailing because your shade's been taken away. And then he says something really penetrating to Jonah. He says, Jonah, you cared about a, a plant that you had nothing to do with planting it, nothing to do with taking care of it, nothing to do even with its destruction. It's just here today and gone tomorrow, and yet you're all upset. You have all this kind of compassion, and you're feeling so sorry for the castor plant, is the idea. And then God drives his object lesson home. Look what he says. But Nineveh, this great city of Nineveh, the text stresses, this great important city of Nineveh, it has 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. There's also many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? Brothers and sisters, I am so glad that the ultimate king of the universe is really concerned about this great city. I am so thankful. It's one of the most incredible messages in all the word of God that the Assyrians, who were the arch enemy of God's chosen people, the Assyrians in the Old Testament are the second enemy that came against God's chosen people. Enemy number one was the Egyptians. When the Egyptians went off the scene, then the Assyrians. When the Assyrians went off the scene, then it was the Babylonians. In the Old Testament, there are three arch enemies, three terrible, vindictive enemies, the same kind of hatred that's being poured out against the Jewish people today was being poured out in the Old Testament. The story stays, same chapter, same verse. And I would expect, I would expect the word of God to say, take them to the sword. We're going to get a great Israeli army. We're going to go in and just destroy the city of Nineveh. We're going to just knock out the city and just kill men, women, and children. 
But the book of Jonah, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, tells us an incredible thing about the heart of God. And, and Old Testament Israel began, slowly but surely, by the movement of the Holy Spirit, that God began to open their hearts. And God began to say, Jonah, it's not just my love that I have for Israel. But don't you know that I'm the creator of all men? That I'm the one that gives them birth? That I'm the one that gives them life? That I'm the one that cared for them? He says there are, there are 120,000 people that spiritually, probably what this verse means, because this is about the population that Nineveh would have been at the time. It's like God is saying, Jonah, don't you realize there's 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh that don't even know their left hand from their right hand as far as the true God is concerned? They don't know anything about the covenants. They don't know anything about my love for them. They don't know anything. They're ignorant in their idolatry. But they're made in my image. Don't you think that I care? You cared about a little castor being plant. Don't you think I care for this 120,000 human beings that are in the city of Nineveh? And the answer to that question, my brothers and sisters, is does God care? Answer, yes, he cares. And that's what anger will cause us to not do. The book closes with a question. There's 120,000 people, spiritually don't know their left hand from their right hand. There's all these dumb animals, so God even lets the veterinarians, the heart of a veterinarian really comes from the heart of God. And all of you that love your little animals, and and I'm included in that, that comes from the heart of God. The ultimate being in in all of heaven and earth says, I have a compassionate heart. Boy, I am so glad in the midst of a world that's filled with so much evil, so much hate, that the ultimate being in the universe is like this, aren't you? The ultimate being in the universe cares for Afghans today. He knows that there's thousands upon thousands of refugees that don't know their left hand from their right hand, and he cares about them. He cares about the Sudanese that have been in civil war Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Sudanese being killed for the last several years. And the word of God is saying, don't you think I care? And the Bible's saying yes. And we as God's people need to learn to care. I want to ask you about Beth's heart and Nikki. You see, the neat thing is that Nikki's now all grown up. She has some other kids. She's married. She's gone on and walked with the Lord. You see, grace really does change lives. Nikki has turned away from her sin. And Nikki's raising a family. And sure, there's been some incredibly tough times. But Nikki, Nikki came back to Jesus and she never left him again. She was transformed by the grace of a church family that really cared. And wasn't just pious and wasn't just hypocritical. And didn't just talk about on the outside, but they really did what grace demands that we do. What about Beth? The neat thing about Beth is that life has a way as you grow older to expose your self-righteousness, to expose your fears. And Beth as well turned away from that rigidity. And what an exciting thing it is today is to say that Beth today has a ton of beautiful kids and the kids love Jesus. And and she has a home that's one of the most exemplary homes that I could ever be exposed to because of God's amazing forgiveness that caused Beth to eventually let go of her anger. And she's not upset with her church family anymore. And she's not upset with her pastor anymore. She as well as opened herself up to the amazing grace that Jesus can provide. The story of the book of Jonah is the great twist in the story.
You would expect God to want to just totally destroy the city of Nineveh without any recourse, no chance at all. And God sends his precious prophet. And the city repents in sackcloth and ashes because God cares. You say, as New Testament believers, how do we drive home this lesson to our own heart? Ephesians chapter 4 has a verse that convicts me and opens my heart to grace. It reads like this. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another. You need to forgive each other. And I say, okay, Lord, what's my example of forgiveness? You need to forgive each other just as Christ, God's Son, forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. You say, Dave, how do I have the power to forgive somebody? How do I have the power to not allow this anger, like Jonah did, to become self-destructive in my life? It all goes back to the cross. You see, when you're angry with somebody, and when I'm angry with somebody, I want them to pay. They're blocking an objective that I have. It's like there's a big wall there, and I wanna, I wanna, I'm frustrated, and they've hurt me, and I feel that somebody should pay. One of the big things I want you, if you're angry about something today, ask yourself this question. Who do I want to pay, and how do I want them to pay it? Who do I want to pay the bill, and how do I want them to pay it? And the way that you as a husband make your wife pay is you withdraw from her. You don't give to her. You're not kind and compassionate towards her. And the bottom line is you're saying, I'm going to live with you, but I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to make you pay every single day of your life by my withdrawal of closeness and intimacy. That's what a husband does. A wife does exactly the same thing. You're frustrated. And, And those of you that have that attitude right now, you come back at me and say, but Dave, if you only knew... If you only knew, and if I only knew, the problem is what happens is when you tank that anger, then the very thing that you hate becomes what you're like. And Ephesians chapter 4 comes to us today and says, hey, Jesus paid the bill. If the person themselves isn't repentant, if they're not like Nikki or they don't break, then it doesn't mean you can just open up relationships and you can just bring them back into fellowship. And the Ninevites had to get down in sackcloth and ashes. See, God deals with everybody as individuals. So this Christ-like forgiveness isn't a wishy-washy ignoring of moral standards. It's not that at all. But what it enables us to do is to realize that when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, he paid the bill, not only for our own sins, but for the sins that people do against us. And we're able to let it go. In your friendships, in high school and in college, there's someone you're angry with. I love the honesty of the book of Jonah. Jonah ends with an open question. Should not the Lord of all the earth have compassion and grace towards these people? And the answer to that question is yes. I would say to Jonah, Jonah, shouldn't you join God in that compassion? Shouldn't you join God in that love? Shouldn't you join God in letting your anger be turned over to him? And the answer to that question is, but the book doesn't answer that question. The only way that I know, I really believe Jonah got his act together because he wrote this book. And Jonah was a great artist. He was a great author. Unlike most of our evangelical literatures, we don't write the truth. And a lot of the books that you read, they don't tell you the way real life is. Everything's always resolved. It's kind of like watching TV. Everything gets resolved in about an hour. And that's why I love the book of Jonah, because it doesn't just resolve Jonah's anger. And I wouldn't want to pretend that I can resolve your anger today. 
All I can do is lay a seed by the power of the Holy Spirit that if you'll let it grow, if you'll let it nurture, if you'll look to the cross, if you allow the forgiveness of Jesus' love and what he did for you on the cross to really permeate your life, then, unlike Jonah, instead of being filled with anger, you'll be filled with amazing grace. I share with you about the, the boy up in Chicago that my friend Charles Lyons, this boy is in his church. In a gang shooting, a drive-by shooting, this 14-year-old boy's little brother, little 6-, 7-year-old brother, by a stray bullet, was struck on the sidewalk and fell in a pool of blood. And all of Chicago was enraged about it. Just a few weeks ago, Charles was on the phone with me, and he was sharing, we just celebrated Dave. We just celebrated the anniversary of that little boy's death. I said, Charles, how did you celebrate? He said, man, all the TV cameras came back again. And we went right on the street where this precious little boy lost his life. This boy's brother stood right on the spot where his brother had fallen, where he reached down and his brother was already home with Jesus. ABC, NBC, CBS came in on this kid and they said, what would you like to be done? What do you want to see happen in the lives of the gang leaders that killed your little brother? This precious, believing teenager looked at the cameras of Chicago and said, I've been praying every single day that they'll receive Jesus Christ into their heart and they'll be forgiven and they'll be transformed and they'll receive the forgiveness that my little brother had in his life. You see, that's what breaks the power of anger. That's what breaks the power of retribution. That's what breaks the power of vengeance. It's the transformation that Jesus can bring into our own lives and into the lives of others through the power of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would unmask the subtle anger that can begin to be like a, a poisonous gas. Anger is like a, a gas we can't smell, we can't taste. It's like we're almost totally unaware of its presence. And yet it begins to fill our life with cynicism and depression and hatred and biting words, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, all of these things. We thank you so much for Jesus that enables us to come to him and he can pour his forgiving love inside of our lives. And I would ask your Lord that the book of Jonah would move all of us to ask ourselves about the animosity towards others that we might have, the closure that we have towards other people. And I want to ask you that your Holy Spirit would cause us to just have the grace of Jesus, the power of his forgiveness on Calvary, to pour into our lives. And I want to pray, Lord, that it would, it would manifest itself in the way that we relate to one another as husbands and wives, the way we relate to each other as parents and children. And we're just so thankful, Heavenly Father, that we worship a God who reveals to us, deep in your heart, you're filled with gracious, compassionate love, so much so that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we don't want to be unforgiving like Jonah was at the conclusion of this book. We want to have your Holy Spirit work in our hearts like you worked in his heart. So that by the time he wrote down these pages, he was able to write with great power about who you were and the gracious womb-like love that you have even for the Assyrians. 
Thank you so much that Jonah's letter to us, his prophecy to us, shows that eventually your Holy Spirit broke through in his life. And you've included this precious book in your holy word so that it could lay a seed of transformation, a seed of healing, a seed of soothing peacefulness that can come into our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.